Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Okay, welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science on your radio once again this week. My name is Chris, and this week I am talking to a superstar of Australian science, a uh, undergraduate, well now graduate of the University of Sydney, who discovered plasma tubes in the upper atmosphere. These are the previously unknown giant structures uh, floating above the Earth. Uh, so I'm talking to her to find out how she found them, and why no one else had seen them previously. Um, it's good that we know, we know they're there now, but there's, I don't think there's anything we can do about it. They're not a bad thing, as far as I know. Anyway, Stu, what do you got for us? Well, I'm, I'm looking back in time uh, to the Middle Ages and finding out a little bit more about the Black Death, which wiped out a great proportion of the population of Europe. Oh, speaking of bad things. In the 14th century. Yes. Um, yeah, but there's some new uh, new research on this old uh, problem, so uh, I'm going to be delving into that a little bit later. Lovely. Um, I can't wait for that. It sounds totally bubonic. Uh, Claire, what have you got for us today? Yeah, well, actually, I am going to be delving back into the ages as well and bringing um, body louse into the 21st century, where nobody wanted it, but here it Great. is anyway. And into the studio. Oh come on! I don't know about that. What are you saying about my personal hygiene? Well, I'm just saying you're bringing them in. You're bringing them in. Um. Is, is it all about <laughs> personal hygiene, or is there something else that makes them attracted to people? Um, I think it might be a lot about personal hygiene. Okay. All right. So mm. consider mm. yourself warned, Stu. Mm. <laughs> I'm insulting everybody today. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're doing very well. Let's keep um, going with that. Off to a good start. All right. Well, <laughs> on with the show. Okay, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name's Chris, and I have here on the line Cleo Loy, who's recently graduated in physics from the University of Sydney, uh, also has worked at the Centre for Excellence for All-Sky Astrophysics. Now, Cleo recently discovered enormous previously unknown tubes of plasma in the Earth's magnetosphere. These were announced in a paper in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, and for her achievement, Cleo has won the Astronomical Society of Australia's 2015 Bok Prize. Now, this is all very good, but I want to find out what these plasma tubes are and what they mean for us down here on the ground. So, uh, Cleo, welcome to Lost in Science. Hi. Great uh, first to be of all, here. Yeah, great. Uh, let me congratulate you first on your research because it is very impressive to discover something that is so big and also so unknown, so close to home, but particularly to do this work as an undergraduate student. Thanks. Um, yes. Okay, so what are these plasma tubes? So, um... I guess you can describe them as cylindrical volumes in the sky that contain more electrons than the surroundings. So the density of electrons inside them is higher than outside. And they're about um, 10, 10 to 100 kilometers in diameter. So they're pretty big by human standards. Mm. Um, but in the, scheme of, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, the Earth is pretty big. It's got a radius of 6,000 kilometers. So they're, they're pretty small compared to the Earth, um, but I guess pretty big compared to humans. Okay. How high up are they? Um, so our telescope that we use to uh, observe them has a field of view that's maybe a couple of hundred kilometers wide, so we can only see a small section of them. And the altitude that we measured 
in that field of view is around about 600 kilometers, but you can see a steep、um, slope of these tubes within the field of view, going from between about 400 to 1,000 kilometers. Now they're going to loop all the way around、um, to the other side of the Earth because they follow the magnetic field lines, which are like big loops. And the very top of the field lines、um, is around about 6,000 kilometers altitude off the ground. Oh wow, that's that's、um, pretty high up. So this is the magnetosphere, is that right? Yeah, so it's all inside the magnetosphere. Okay, and that's what is what is the magnetosphere? Those for, just so, for those who don't know it. So the magnetosphere of the Earth is the region of influence of the Earth's magnetic field. So it's wherever、um, charged particles experience forces due to the Earth's magnetic field. Okay.、Um, now, how did you find these these plasma tubes? Um, so it was completely by accident, actually. So the research group I'm with is the、um, uh, Sydney Institute for Astronomy, and、um, I'm also affiliated with something called Castro, which is the Centre for Altai、um, Astrophysics.、Mm-hmm. And for us, we're interested in the square kilometre array and、um, the precursor instruments that are the test beds for the types of technologies that will be used on the SKA. So the MWA, the Murchison Whitefield Array, is a new radio telescope that was recently built. Um, it came online in 2013, and it's, so it's a spanking new instrument. And part of the、um, uh, tasks that need to be done are to investigate how much da- the data get distorted by the ionosphere, which is、um, it's like a big、um, cloud of electrons that refracts and bends the paths of radio waves.、Um, so my task was to look at how the ionosphere was distorting the data. Right. And when I looked at these distortion patterns, so you map out the distribution of the、um, distortion in the sky, you see the distortions are concentrated in these these stripes, these bands that, that streak across the field of view, and they follow the magnetic field lines. So this is evidence that there was there was something in the sky, some some sort of pattern of electrons that was、um, distorting them and cause um and in, in these big tubular structures. Okay,、um, but I understand that you need to do some special tricks with the、uh, with the telescope to be able to see these、uh, or get exactly where they were. Yes.、Yeah, so without doing the、um, so, if you just form an image of the sky using the whole array as one big instrument, you just obtain,、um, I guess, a two dimensional、uh, view of the sky. But if you want to know how far away those structures are. You need some way of triangulating the altitude. So what we did was we took the array, we split it in half, so it's it's、um, an array of antennas. There are 128、mm-hmm. of those, and the voltages that get captured by those antennas are stored somewhere else. So we can dig them up and reprocess them, such that you get all the voltages from the eastern half of the array and all the voltages in the western half of the array, and we form separate images using those two halves. And you see a slight shift in this pattern in the sky that tells you how far away they are. In the same way that your eyes、um, can be used to judge the distance to an object. Okay, so using the two two halves of the radio telescope, like two eyes, yes, to see、right. the distance. Brilliant.、Um, well, that's that is、um, pretty interesting. Do these、um, have any effect on us? These plasma、um, structures in the、uh, in the magnetosphere. So their primary impact will be. On radio astronomy, I think, because the new generation of radio telescopes will be affected by them in a way that no other radio telescope has been affected by them before. So that's the kind of a new、um, impact they will have, and that's why this work is important.、Um, but on a sort of broader scale, I guess,、uh, 
um, satellite communications and, and well, I guess, um, VHF and UHF communications will be affected by these uh, structures because um, they bend the paths of, of those radio waves. So, for example, if you try to receive a signal from a GPS satellite um, and that signal path is getting bent, then you can get errors in your position. Um, and if the um, ray paths intersect and interfere with one another, you get a diffraction pattern happening, or, um, and this causes the signal from the satellite to twinkle. So it will fluctuate in brightness. You could lose your lock on the satellite, and that could mean that you lose your navigation capability if you lose lock on too many GPS satellites because you need at least four. Right. Um, so those are the types of, of things that will affect um, um, people who are not astronomers, um, but the main impact will be for astronomers. Okay. So I guess you, as an astronomer, you've been mostly looking a bit further than the atmosphere, and I understand that this is not the first uh, astronomical discovery that you've been involved with. Is that correct? Um, well, I've done sort of bits and pieces of um, uh, projects um, in my undergrad years, and one of them was uh, looking at a, a supernova remnant that um, was discovered by the Swift telescope, which is operated by NASA. Okay. Um, I wasn't myself involved in the discovery, so this was done by SWIFT and the, the SWIFT team. Right. Um, what we did um, at the at Sydney University was to do a follow-up study. Okay, and so and you basically confirmed that it was the a supernova remnant. It was in combination with the X-ray data from the SWIFT satellite and also infrared data that happened to be in in the archives, um, combined with the radio data. Um, we we saw this, this blob in radio in um, the radio images. So, which has, um, which looked a lot like a supernova remnant, and so that was, I guess, and we based on the size of that um, uh, uh, remnant, we uh, constrained the age, and we found that it's probably one of the youngest in the galaxy, and it's also the very faintest one in the galaxy known. So, okay. quite exciting that the telescope we use, which is um, not the MWA, but another telescope operating in Australia, that we could, we could see this, this incredibly faint, um, young object. Right. How, how young? Um, let's see. It's, I think, less than, less than about 2,000 years old. Wow, okay. But no records of seeing, people seeing that supernova, are there? As far as I know, there weren't any records. But the thing is that um, being quite close to the galactic plane, where there's lots of dust and gas, um, it wouldn't have been very bright. Okay. It, well, it would have been easily obscured by the dust in the plane so that you wouldn't have been able to see it with the naked eye. As far as I know, there weren't any records of, of people seeing it around that time. Okay. And I understand now that you are off to Cambridge University in, uh, in England to study a PhD. What will you be working on there? The um, project itself hasn't quite been decided. Um, we've sort of um, we've been discussing this project um, on the solar dynamo, so looking at how the sun generates magnetic fields um, inside it. Okay, so back to magnetic fields for you then. Yes, yes. Uh, very good. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us, um, Cleo, and best of luck with your future research and your PhD. Thank you. And that was Cleo Loy, astrophysics graduate from the University of Sydney. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before.
Most people have probably uh, heard about the Black Plague uh, because it was responsible for somewhere between 75 and 200 million deaths in Europe in the mid-14th century. Uh, it's also known as the Black Death uh, because, obviously, of the lethal effect of the plague on human beings, and it reduced the population of Europe by possibly up to 60% during the 1350s. Hmm. <clears throat> Um, the plague periodically returned to Europe up until the 1800s uh, and caused a number of illnesses, including buboes or swellings, which is where right. the name bubonic plague comes from. They're often like under the armpit. Under the armpit and yeah. in the inner thigh. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if that's got to do with the tissue, possibly because of the uh, way that it's transmitted as well. Um, but also respiratory symptoms, which is generally referred to as pneumonic plague, as okay. in pneumonia. Um, so the disease itself was most likely carried to Europe on board ships hidden in the gut of oriental rat fleas who lived on the back of black rats, which rode on the ships. Uh, and also of course in the infected crew of those ships. So, uh, the crew got the plague and then got off the ships in Europe and ran around giving it to other people. Um, so before reaching Europe in the 14th century, it killed about 25 million people in China and Mongolia. Wow. And spread to India and the Middle East by ship and also on trading routes over land. So the Silk Road traders mm-hmm. carried the disease around with them. But the question always was what caused the disease itself? So for many years, the culprit was unidentified and numerous theories were debated until Quite recently, a bacterium was identified as the most likely pathogen. So they didn't actually know what the what the pathogen was up until then. Oh, well, up until uh, in twenty ten, yeah, uh, work was published in PLOS Pathogens, which is an online journal. Yep, um, that identified DNA signatures of a bacteria called Yersinia pestis in both modern outbreaks of the plague and in skeletons from the Middle Ages. Oh, okay. So there's mass graves throughout Europe yep. um, where plague victims all got buried because they really didn't know what to do with them, but they thought it was best to um, get them out of the way. And I guess you can see what people are getting like in modern times, uh, but you need to confirm what it was back in the back in the day. Yeah, well, that's right. It is still around. So this bacterium is the likely cause of all outbreaks of what we identify as the Black Plague, including a recent outbreak in Madagascar in 2013 that killed 60 people. Hmm. Um also occurs and recurs in Peru and in the Democratic Republic of Congo quite uh, frequently. So, yeah, they have got modern uh, victims or modern patients, I guess, of the plague, and they can compare that to signatures of of the uh, DNA they can find in um, plague victims from the Middle Ages. Um, Now, some researchers believe that once it infects the lungs, so the pneumonic plague, Mm -hmm. might become an airborne pathogen, so it can spread more quickly than it would if it's just reliant on those fleas. Um, But there's not a lot of evidence in favour of that theory. It is still just a sort of a hypothesis at Mm -hmm. this stage, and they need to do some more work in it. Um, But the same bacterium, that Yersinia pestis, is also the likely cause of an earlier illness that swept through the Byzantine Empire in the 6th century, which was known as the Justinian Plague. Um... Now, more recently, in a paper published in Nature Communications, uh, research with a related gastrointestinal pathogen called Yersinia 
pseudotuberculosis, uh, discovered a new connection. Now, the researchers found that by inserting a single gene called PLA mm-hmm. into this related bacteria, the Yersinia pseudotuberculosis, they actually transformed that bacteria into the disease-causing agent of the Black Plague. How do they know it was? Do they? Are they just by genetically they could tell the difference? They well, they, they actually they actually basically exposed some mice ah. to this uh, pathogen and they got symptoms of the plague. Okay, good. So yeah, they they tested it directly on on live subjects. Um, so yeah, they inserted this gene and changed this um, relatively uh, mild mm-hmm. pathogen into the killer black plague bacteria. Great. So we've made a deadly bacterium. Yeah, well, it's still around, so it's not like they... Uh, mm-hmm. and, they and it's not like they released it either. Um, what they also did, they analysed the genome of wild types of the plague and estimate that this insertion happened in the wild uh, around 1,500 years ago, which is just before the Justinian plague hit okay. the Byzantine Empire. Um, so it's a clear gem- demonstration that a single gene insertion in a bacteria, which actually happens all the time in bacteria, they've got a different sort of genetic um, exchange system to other organisms. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly swapping bits and pieces of their genes between different bacteria. Um, so a single gene can actually change a low-level pathogen into a potential pandemic hmm. which you know could potentially have similar effects to the uh to the black plague um and there's no way of predicting any of that sort of stuff either mm. which is kind of a bit scary if you think about it yeah um so if you want to read that full article where they did the uh gene insertion you can find that online in the journal nature communications the paper itself is called early emergence of yersinia pestis as a severe respiratory pathogen. So they've got full details of their whole experiment online and everyone can read that because it's an open article too. Cool. Well, we'll pop that up on our, link to that up on our website. Yes, we'll do that. Excellent. So uh, my aim this morning is to get all listeners scratching their heads as we ponder the louse. Um, but before you both start scratching your hair follicles at the thought of near-microscopic insects crawling around, laying eggs, sucking blood, generally creeping you out, let me tell you, it's not just about head lice that I'll be talking about today, um, but the close brethren, the body louse. Um, so body louse are ectoparasites and they may be experiencing somewhat of a reconnaissance. Really? A renaissance? A so maybe be. maybe they're just going to come and have a look and then go back and tell their doing, mates. I think they're doing that as well. Um, <laughs> so ectoparasite, what does that mean? Ectoparasites are parasites that um, live on the surface of the skin. Right, okay. Yes. As opposed to endoparasites that live inside your body. Okay. That's right. So amazingly, human body lice, they're extremely specific to humans and they only infest us. Um, that doesn't mean that other animals don't get off lightly. There are, there are very specific body lice parasites for almost every bird and mammal species, um, with a few exceptions like the platypus, echidna, bats, and for some reason or another, pangolin. 
those monotremes get off light. They yeah. get off lightly. How? How do they avoid it? Is it it's by weeing weeing? Maybe, maybe the lice for monotremes went extinct. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. Maybe with the echidna it's the spikes, but... I don't understand with the platypus. Hmm. Hmm. But yes. so they don't but they don't cross between species from the sound of it. So all those warnings I had, don't don't pick up the birds, they'll give you lice. That doesn't yeah. happen. Maybe mites. Mites? Yeah. Possibly. Yeah, possibly mites. Hmm. Might be a problem. Might be a problem. So um the lice, the body lice, they mm-hmm. either eat our dead skin or they suck our blood. And interestingly enough, in genetic terms, they have the smallest genome of any insect. Um, so before we go any further, shall I give you a short history of lice and men and women? Of, of lice and men. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right, okay. Um, well, first of all, um, the differences between body lice and head lice. So scientists have been researching lice and have been arguing for over centuries whether they are different species um, or whether they are subspecies, so the head lice and the body okay, lice. Yeah. They are indistinguishable in appearance. Um, and in terms of breeding, they actually do interbreed, but only when you put them in a laboratory setting. So in the wild, they don't interbreed. In the wild, i.e. the human body, they don't breed. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and if you look at their DNA um, of the mitochondria, it suggests that they're different species. But if you look at the DNA of the nucleus, um, that suggests that they are subspecies. So oh, sort so of it's interesting. It's quite complicated. Mm. And um, and they occupy different habitats, of course, one on the head um, and one on the body. And body lice have evolved to attach their eggs to clothing, so oh. the clothes that we wear. And uh, the head lice have um, evolved to attach their eggs to the base of base of the hairs. Okay. So a couple of different behavioural adaptations there. So you don't get so, so body lice in on your face or that sort of thing, which not covered by hair or. That's clothing. right. Yeah. Unless mm. you wear a mask. Unless you wear a mask. What about beards? Do the head lice go into beards? That's an excellent question. I think it needs further research. I'll, I'll get onto that. I don't want to infect myself with lice, but uh, no, no. Um, but one thing I did discover about body lice was that they were actually first described by the father of modern taxonomy, Carl Linnaeus. Oh. Yeah. Which makes it sort of this special sort of scientific irony that the species is so hard to classify because the father of modern taxonomy it was first the one discovered who, yeah, them. Right. Yeah. I thought that was pretty impressive. Okay. And what if he found them on Carl? And Carl decided to come up with the whole taxonomic system because he said, oh, no, I don't have lice. I've got something else. And he had to make up a new name for them. I, ha- hmm. I don't have well, hair lice. I have body lice. Well, well if he's the one who, who discovered them, everyone else is going, never seen them before, Carl. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> don't know what's going on there. Um, but weirdly enough, we can use body lice to actually estimate when humans began wearing clothes. Right. Mm. So pinpointing when the body louse separated from the head louse um, helps us to work out okay. when we started wearing clothes because that's when we, we started giving the body louse a substrate to attach their a different, eggs to. A different environment, essentially. Yeah, mm. a different environment. And um, previously it was a question that was open to interpretation, so researchers couldn't really pinpoint exactly the time. But... Um, um, some conclusions can be drawn that indicate um, 
it was around 170,000 years ago that both the body louse separated from the head louse and that we started wearing clothes. Wow, so that is before uh, any Homo sapiens left Africa, I believe, isn't it? Because it was about 70,000 years ago is the current theory of when um, populations of of Homo sapiens, it is not Neanderthals, left Africa. Yeah, and it's also well after humans lost all their body hair. Ah, Okay. Mm. So So they they, they probably just found an old episode, uh, an old... Uh, issue of Vogue and looked at what the fashions at the time were and figured out they went mm. from wearing no clothes to wearing clothes that season. Yes, yes, Jay. And it and it and it caught on. And it caught on. Yeah, it was very fashionable. Yeah, and twenty years later, that same thing was in fashion again. <laughs> That's right. Mm. Now I want to digress a little into folklore. Um, back in the ages when we showered and washed less, body lice were a very common part of mm-hmm. our life. Yep. As you would imagine. Um, And we actually developed a lot of cultural practices around them. So, for example, if you're a young Siberian woman looking for a potential husband, uh, a good way to see if a man was a match for you was to throw your body lice at him. And if the lice took hold, um, it was a good sign and there was an offer of marriage. Okay, then. Yes. And um, in the Middle Ages, in a place called um, Hördenberg in Sweden, a mayor was chosen by a louse being placed on a table and all of the candidates resting their chins on the table. Um, and then the louse would choose... Who to crawl towards? Who to crawl towards, which was would then choose the mayor of the town. Okay. Yeah. So this, um, this theory that you were saying before about you know, personal hygiene, perhaps you know, the, the, dirty, the dirty mayor or the, the dirty husband... The dirty mayor, the dirty husband, yeah. they, they, they became the selected. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. There were different selection press pressures back then, Chris. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but before you go out scouting for any body lice, um, I feel compelled to tell you that these parasites um, do carry some nasty um, diseases. Typhus. Downside to lice. Who'd the downside to lice. Typhus, trench fever, um, and something called relapsing fever which doesn't sound too great either. Uh, they're all bacterial diseases that are uh, transferred via the lice. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, it's much more of a problem now in developing countries than it is um, in a country like um, Australia, uh, where there's a lack of access to water and sanitation and hygiene. Um, however, there might be a re-emergence of louse-borne diseases with an increase in the resistance to chemicals used to kill them, mm-hmm. um, uh, a re-emergence of body lice in geographic areas of the world, um, and it's even thought that maybe washing laundry in cold water might bring about a re-emergence of some of these body lice. Oh. Indeed. So from what I can see, this would not be very lice for any of us. Well, uh, a new lice age is upon us. Thank you very much, Claire. <laughs> All right, that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. We have spoken to astrophysicist Claire Loy from the University of Sydney about her discovery of plasma tubes in the Earth's magnetosphere. Uh, Stu has told us all about the bubonic plague and how it arose. And Claire has told us more than we needed to know about body lice. Uh, Lost in Science it is recorded at the studios of 3CR and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please do. You can email us at lostinsight at gmail.com or you can uh, find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or we are on Twitter. Or you can listen to us on the radio once again next week when Claire, 
Manisha, Stuart and Chris get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.